Be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the podcast with me, Dan Cottrell. I'm editor of Rugby Coach Weekly and I'm delighted to welcome along to the podcast Carl Hendrick and Paul Kirshner to talk about their book, How Learning Happens, Seminal Works in Educational Psychology and What They Mean in Practice. So welcome to the podcast, Carl and Paul. Hello. Hello. Pleased to be here. Thank you for that. And that was um, <laughs> that was supposed to be um, sought out bef- uh, thought out beforehand. So uh, everyone's supposed to answer in order. And they did that very well. But I'm sure they're going to interrupt each other as we go along. Anyway, both Carl and Paul are leading experts in education and learning. And both are also very keen uh, football supporters. Carl with Liverpool and Paul with Ajax. Uh, Carl also coaches the first 11 at Wellington College, which I know very well for their rugby exploits, as well as many other reasons like my brother's children are there. So I hope Carl is going to be very nice to them after this. Anyway, the book How Learning Happens introduces 28 giants of educational research and their findings on how we learn and what we need to learn effectively, efficiently and enjoyably. So my first question is going to be all about Ajax, and I'm going to ask this to uh, Paul. And um, I read a quote the other day from the the great Johan Cruyff, and he said, I trained three to four hours a week at Ajax when I was little, but played three to four hours a day on the street. So where do you think I learned football? Far be it for me to... Uh disagree with one of the greatest philosophers that the 20th century has ever known, Johan Cruyff. But um, there's a difference here between um, uh, playing and learning. Uh, What he did uh, on the street is he practiced quite a lot. And practice is very, very important for automating different moves, maybe even including his creative Cruyff turn or as you call it, the Cruyff turn. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but uh, he actually probably learned more from people like uh, Rinus Michels, who was his coach, and uh, the trainers in everything, as we call it, from the F pupils up to the uh, B and A uh, youth, uh, with respect to uh, technique, how to do things properly. And that's quite a difference. Um, uh, 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 He practiced the things that he learned three or four hours a day. And that's really, really great. That's really important for automating those things which he actually learned. Because in the Netherlands, starting as a child in the F pupils from Ajax, he was probably six, seven, eight years old. There he learned the actual techniques that he then practiced. And those are two completely different things. So sometimes... Uh, we are it's suggested that they should go off and freely play and discover what they're going to do. I know we're going to talk about discovery a little bit later on. Do we need to have our sports people going off and working it out for themselves as well as coming into train? Or do we need to have that mixed up in our training? I mean, you're very lucky if someone is going to go off and practice for three hours a day. Uh, uh, I'll give you an example. It has it, it, it's, it's very close to um, what you're talking about, this discovery and also with motivation. 
a, a, a child may want to bend it like Beckham, yeah? Uh, uh, be able to, uh, or Messi, to be able to give a free kick uh, around the wall of uh, defenders and get it in. And the, the child is incredibly motivated in how to do it and can try to discover how to kick the ball in such a way that it will, number one, go around the defenders, uh, so it'll curve, and number two, will uh, fall at the right speed so that it goes right where it should be into the goal. And that child can get up and try that time and time and time again. And maybe every once in a while, he'll get that or she'll get that curve on the ball that, that he or she is looking for. But the next time he or she kicks the ball, it again just goes into the wall of defenders until that person is actually, yeah, you can say has, his foot goes lame from and it gets cramps from kicking it. If you have a good coach who comes in and says, well, you have to plant your one foot this way and hit it with the side. And if you do that, you'll see it start to curve. All of a sudden, with that one piece of instruction, that child will see that the ball begins to curve and knows why it's now curving. Yeah what he or she did right. It's not trial and error. So creativity is great, but you become more creative the more you know. And each step of the way, being trained by a good coach or a good teacher, brings you a step further in understanding what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to do it. And then after that, you can experiment as much as you want and you'll become an expert in it, like a Messi, like a Beckham but only if you know what you're doing. And that's the whole point of it. Discovery is good if you have the basic, and creativity is good if you have the basic knowledge and skills to be able to be creative. So the role of the coach then is to allow them to have the skills, uh, first of all, to know why they're doing it. Is that what yes. you think? Yes, to understand if you hit the ball in a certain way, it will put a rotation on the ball and it will cause things. And you're not going to say to a five-year-old, it's going to cause rotation on the ball, yeah, because of the seams. But you're trying to have them understand if they do it in a certain way, it will do certain things so that they can then practice and perfect that. So... Uh, Carl, if we go back to what uh, the, the quote was saying, I trained three to four hours a, a week at Ajax and when I was little but played to three to four hours a day on the street. Um, how do you then translate that into maybe working with a team like you're working with your first 11 at Wellington? Well, if you take a, a role such as a centre-half or defender, there's a certain knowledge that a defender needs to know. And it, it, it can be things like what to do on corners, how to man mark, depending on what, um, say, w what a coach wants to do at corners, if he wants to do zone marking or man to man. But there's a very sort of um, a very specific schema that that player needs to know. And if he doesn't know it, then he's guessing. He's just guessing. And he may have, as Paul says, elements where it comes off. But in a game situation, the player who's got that scheme of knowledge and is able to anticipate and know what he's going to do when he doesn't really know what to do. When, when you see really, really good players, um, you, you, what, the thing I always sort of think is they've almost done their thinking before they're on the pitch. And the, the players that I see 
who sort of struggle. They're they're trying to figure it out in the moment. It's a bit. It's and it, um, it's it's quite like um, students doing exams. The the student who's sort of in an exam hall, trying to figure out how am I going to say this, or what do I think. They're the ones that struggle, and the ones that have that sort of schema of <clears throat> when to step out, when to anticipate. You know, a simple thing such as if a defender is anticipating uh, an attack, if he faces side on, so he can turn around much quicker and then run towards his goal. If there's no, you know, that's not something. Those sort of things are often things that need to be coached. And so you can pick those up in the um, in, in the schoolyard or wherever, but I would say it's probably unlikely. And if it's done, it's often it, it learned. It's learned in a le- less effective and efficient way. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's the whole thing. Um, they learn it, they automate it, they create the schemas, as 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 Carl said in their in in their minds. They automate it, and then it's almost as if. They're not thinking about what they're doing, and maybe they're not thinking because it's become so automated and they know where the other people are supposed to be because it's been taught also to the other people. So you can play the ball to a certain place knowing that someone else will be there. You don't have eyes in the back of your head, but it's it's, it's trained into the situation. Mm-hmm. Is, is this the uh, idea of working memory and long-term memory then? Or is that no. something something different? So something uh, completely different. Okay, so uh, what what are we looking at here in terms of uh, the education of the player then? Now, if you're talking about going back to what you just asked about short-term memory and uh, or working memory mm-hmm. and long-term memory, I'll give you an example. I used to play squash a lot, and I was a, a fairly good squasher. Yeah, and I would always be playing with other people and actually training other people in how they should play. And what I saw by some people who were training others is that they had the, their, their pupil um, thinking about where their feet should be, where their racket should be, how their body should be turned, uh, how open or closed the, the, the racket should have been, uh, whether they should walk around to a, a forehand or a backhand, all of those things all at the same time. And that doesn't work because your short term, your working memory becomes overloaded. What you're doing in that situation is you're saying to the person, okay, we're now only concentrating on where do you plant your feet? And you train that so that the person knows where to plant their feet so that they can either give a forehand or a backhand. Once that person has that done, and that's quite a lot to think about because they have to move to the ball, they have to stop at a certain time, and they have to plant their feet. That's three different things. And if you Mm. think a working memory can handle four things, five things at once, you're doing quite a lot. And then they have to hit the ball. Hmm. Once they get that down, you can say, okay, now you're doing your forehand. Open up your racket face a little bit. And then the ball will do this. Now, at that point in time, where they plant their feet is now in their long-term memory. It's They don't have to think about that anymore. So at that point in time, I can introduce something new into the situation where they have to think about because they no longer have to think about where their feet are. That's now part of the schema in their long-term memory that when they go to the ball, either for a backhand or a forehand, they know how to plant their feet to do it properly. And you do it one thing at a time. Yeah. When do you jump 
to head the ball in. How do you use your head when you do it? Those are all different things. If you have to think at the same time, how do I plant my feet? When do I jump? How do I jump? How do I hit it? My head? All at the same time, you're overloading your working memory and you can't do that. So a good coach will concentrate on one thing at a time, slowly but surely adding to it and automating it. Now, one of the things I'm, um, I understand about uh, learning and coaching is that you should maybe coach one thing, then leave it alone for a while and then come back to it at a later time. How does that fit into this, uh, this idea of not overloading the player? Carl, do you want to take that? Or yeah, I think, you know, one of the, the most solid things uh, in learning is the idea of revisiting information. Um, it's one of Rosenstein's principles. I think also Graham Nuttall refers to this in his wonderful book, um, that's the hidden the hidden lives of learners, that you need to encounter a new piece of information three times, three separate occasions in order to properly assimilate it. But I think the difference between, um, say, learning in a classroom and learning on a on a uh, a football pitch is that. There's a, 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 a huge amount of repetition on a football pitch, and particularly if a, if a, a player decides they want to play in a, in a particular position, they will do things over and over and over again in a way that they wouldn't in other domains. But going to um, what you're saying is learning something and leaving it and coming back to it. That's got two aspects. The first thing is what we call space practice. And we know that uh, spacing your practice um, doing uh, uh, something for a short amount of time, leaving it for a while and coming back to it works better than spending two or three times that amount of time on that one thing and then thinking you've got it. The second is what we call variability of practice. If you learn something at one moment and you leave it, you're not saying, well, we don't do anything. Then you're teaching them something else. You're coaching them on something else. And what you're trying to get them to do is to understand what do I do in what situation? And you can only do that if you give the learner enough different situations. And you're just not, not, like, not practicing only A, 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 A until someone has it and then B, 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 B. And then CC to mix it up, vary it up so that the person understands when do I take that step in and when do I take that step out but if you only practice when do i take that step in until someone can do it perfectly and think okay that person knows it and then only when do i take that step out at the moment that that person is playing the game you haven't practiced you haven't understood when do i do a and when do i do b and when do i do c now that's called variability of practice and that's a really important thing that we need to do in both training on the pitch but also teaching in the school so going back to sort of teaching in the school um and this is going to be to you carl uh, i was going to ask you the question uh what do you think learning is any different in the classroom than on the sports field so i'm going to try and draw an analogy then that uh, in the classroom you practice and practice and practice uh, uh, do whatever you do in the classroom and then you sit in the exam um on the sports field uh, you train during the week and then you play a game on the weekend um is there any difference between 
that classroom experience into the exams and what happens in training and then onto the sports field? Um, there's not many kids on a football pitch or a rugby pitch who do not want to be there, but there are millions of kids <laughs> in classrooms who would rather be anywhere else. So the, the, the major difference I would say is with, um, you know, maths, English, science, um, what Geary calls biologically secondary knowledge. These are things that you, that, very often you're trying to get kids to learn stuff that they don't really want to learn and that their brain doesn't want to learn either. The brain doesn't really want to think. It's always looking for shortcuts. Whereas most, um, most sort of players, um, and I'm thinking particularly sort of at sort of coaching level, they've chosen to do that sport. They want to be there. They're eager to learn. So the, the the job of a teacher is uh, manifold. Not only are you you're, not only are you delivering content and then it, it, assessing their how much you know they've learned it. You're also trying to get them to like things that they don't naturally want to learn. And I think that is where there are things that sort of transcend the empirical and things like passion, things like enthusiasm, and and the infectious nature of somebody talking about something as if their life depended on it and you see that in sports a lot you know we were talking there about um barcelona and some of the great teams it, a really kind of interesting argument in um we'll say football or coaching is you've got co you've got coaches like alex ferguson or brian clough who've achieved incredible things or or, or Igor saki um or um, even Mourinho in the last 10, 15 years. But to what extent are they really making a difference? What, like, to what extent even does um, a teacher really make a difference? And the, I've had this argument with people many, many times. Certain people think, oh, you know, there's this cult of personality. It's the coach who's influencing the players, and without the coach, nothing would happen. And there's not many coaches who would uh, replicate that, although those coaches I, I mentioned have. So I think that the, there's an element of, particularly in different subjects, where teachers can uh, convince young people, students, to like things and be passionate about things that they wouldn't normally be. Whereas a, co a sporting coach is really thinking about uh, performance and, and trying to, I think, um, get them to get into a place where you often hear this phrase in coaching, go out there and express yourself. <laughs> and again, that's goes back to what Paul said about it's all very well expressing yourself. If you know what to do, if you, if you can read the game and you've got those, uh, that ability, there's nothing worse than a, a terrible footballer expressing themselves. So, um, I think that, that would, that would be the main difference. And that's where in my own life, having inspirational teachers, say, for example, I can remember a teacher, talking about the Odyssey or talking about Shakespeare and something lighting up inside me and going, I want to be like that. I want to be able to talk about life in that way. And that really changed me and made me want to study literature and, and subsequently ended up being an English teacher. If I can add one small caveat uh, to that, uh, Dan, um, uh, 
if we look at um, youngsters uh, on a pitch, um, they're there probably because they want to be there. But that doesn't mean that all of the things that the coach is having them do is something that they experience as being fun. Because if you That's have to true. stand there and just do the same thing repetitively over and over and over again, taking a free kick until you can't feel your leg anymore, hmm. um, uh, swimming until you throw up, those aren't things that 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 children, uh, young adults, actually uh, appreciate and think are great. They 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 want to play on Saturday or a Sunday in the game. That's great. But the things that go into the training of it aren't always the the, the most fun things. So getting back to what Carl said about uh, uh, Geary and biologically secondary. Um, if you listen and you think about what Geary says, at a certain point in time for learning the biologically secondary, you have to um, depress the biologically prime primary. And the biologically primary are the things like being inquisitive or wanting to play. Those are great things, biologically primary. But if you want to learn those things that don't come naturally, that are, that are, that are, 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 are cultural artifacts, like maths, like sciences, like writing, all of those types of things. If you want to learn that effectively and efficiently, you have to depress the child's um, primary wish to be uh, playful. A coach on the pitch also has to say, no, Johnny, not stop playing. We hit the ball that way. Yeah. Now, that's exactly what goes on. That's, that's very quite, true. That's, yeah. yeah. That's so that's true. quite scary, though, isn't it? Uh, because... Uh, one of the things that um, we're, we're told often is that if you're not motivated, you're not engaged, you're not ready to learn. And um, you've just said to a child who is um, having great fun, running around, um, kicking a ball in all sorts of dire directions, expressing themselves completely in the wrong way. And yeah. now you say in order for you to become better, you need to stop having yes. fun and mm -hmm. you need to start kicking the ball correctly. Now, exactly. won't, that, won't that just turn the child off? Won't the child just say, just man, this is not fun. I'm not turning up next week. When the child now is standing in front of a row of defenders and kicks the ball around the defenders and it goes into the goal and experiences a success, whereas before that there was no success on the free kick, then that child has a feeling of accomplishment. Everybody, the crowd roars. That child does a, 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 a Ronaldo jump in the air and uh, hits his chest and says, look at me, look at me. That success breeds motivation. And the child will then want to be able to even curl that ball even more. The child will want to be able to pass the defender even better after having learned how to do it. It's great to be motivated to want to do it, but if you're constantly having the ball taken away from you by a defender because you don't know how to pass him or her, it's no fun playing anymore. Then you think, hey, I can't play football. I'm really bad at this. Why don't I just stop? The other kids look at you and say, every time you give you the ball, you lose it to the defender. Is that very motivational? But if the trainer says, okay, Johnny, you have to do it this way and put your, 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 your leg that way and then watch how the defender steps in and that kid passes the defender, hey, I can do it. That's what breeds motivation. Success leads to motivation. Motivation 
doesn't lead to success. It's great to have it, the motivation. Every teacher should strive to motivate his or her kids. But being motivated does not lead to learning. There's no causal link in my terminology between motivation and success. The other way around, it's been proven. Success leads to more motivation. So you wouldn't um, necessarily tell the child or stand up there and say, this is what's going to happen. There would be slightly different ways of doing it. But you are, in the end, creating a situation where they they gain some success, which they weren't getting before. So, Carl, how might that that look for you? Yeah. Let's say you're learning to drive a car and there's a range of different things that you need to do. Let's say you're, you're 17 years of age, you're learning to drive a car. You would never say in that situation, uh, go and express yourself, go and discover how to do it. I'm not going to, you know, all that stuff that was floating around 15 years ago in schools of don't tell kids the answers that people being proud of talking for only five minutes in a lesson, you would, you would carefully give guidance. You would provide scaffolding, you provide close feedback. And then only after a long time when they've gained confidence and they've gained motivation, would they, would they learn to do it for me in a classroom? Um, the, uh, and I experienced this myself as a student, there's nothing more demotivating than not knowing what the hell's going on hmm. and sitting there and, and talking to another person who hasn't got a clue what's going on and the sugar paper is out and you've got the post-it notes and hmm. the teachers at the front going, I'm not going to tell the answers you got. That is, that's just a dead end. Now, if you want to get, um, someone so let's say you're teaching a student in a very sort of practical example you're teaching them how to write a paragraph about shakespeare they don't they're not interested in shakespeare you 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 would consider the fact that they as paul mentioned earlier there's a, a limit to working memory there's a, there's a limit to what they new information they can take in so you would create a, a set of conditions where they have learned facts they have learned certain things that they can then use and you would be very sort of encouraging and prescriptive, but very clear in explaining how to do this thing. And then you'd get them to practice it, and then you would guide them and you would scaffold them. And Sorry, can I just quickly, quickly, yeah. can you explain what you mean by scaffolding? So scaffolding um, is a term that refers to initially providing very, very close guidance, and then gradually taking away the scaffolding as the learner improves in what they're doing. So you would you would provide lots of different cues, um, lots of different uh, opportunities. Um, and a, a lot of times what it means is um, asking questions to someone as they're going about a task. Do you think that's the right way to do it? What about this? And then gradually the idea is it's a bit you know like building a building. You put up a scaffolding initially and then as it becomes built, you take that away. And then the end product is there and, you, and obviously you can't see how it was built. So for, for a student trying to write that paragraph on um, on Shakespeare, again, if they, if you, if without any instruction on what to do or any examples of what to do, they're just guessing. And it's, it, it, and, and it's very difficult to be excellent if you don't know what excellent looks like. And so as somebody, an expert being explicit in what it looks like and encouraging the student and making it interesting and making it exciting, and making it, 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 
very clear to this kid that this is worth your time. This is worth accomplishing. And then they maybe write a sentence or two sentences and they, and they get it. And they, as Paul says, they have that feeling of accomplishment. That leads to motivation. And I think it's very, it's very important that uh, one of the things that certainly comes across in the book is that you're not just saying that I'm in an hour with a student. I'm spending 55 minutes telling them and giving them five minutes of practice. Practice is a lot of what is going on. And, and can you just tell me a bit about retrieval practice? Because I think that's very important in uh, understanding the all the different elements of practice. So uh, my understanding is that you might tell them something or introduce something, they practice it, and then that's one sort of practice. And then uh, at a later date, they have what um, is referred to as retrieval practice. So they're, they're different, is that right? If, if we look at how people learn, um, uh, uh, information comes in to our sensory memory and we bring it to our working memory and we do something with it. And when we do something with it while it's in our working memory, um, we, uh, we do that and it helps store it in our long-term memory. Yeah, That's called storage strength. But what you also want to do is you want to bring it out of that long-term memory back into the working memory to do something with what's already learned. That's called retrieval strength. You retrieve it from your long-term memory. So what you do in teaching is you're constantly, David Archibald said it, the, the most important thing for learning is what we all know, is you're constantly beginning with, let's bring it, what you already know, out of your long-term memory, into your working memory, so that we can do something with it. And that can be as simple as um, what were the three most important uh, uh, plays from Shakespeare? Or uh, what are the two different uh, uh, most uh, uh, parts of a, a sonnet? Or just all of those types of things, which we did yesterday because we need it today. But at that point in time, you're not telling the student, remember, a, son a sonnet is 14 lines and this and that and the other thing. And the rhyme scheme is you're asking them, we did that yesterday. Okay, what is it? And everyone has to, or you cold call, or you have them come up to the board, or they speak, they, they, they all say it in unison or whatever, but you're asking them to bring it out of their long-term memory back into their working memory so they can do something with it today. The more you do that, and the more different ways you do that, the more you, um, more strong you make the, the, the retrieval trace in the, from the memory so that it, it's remembered more quickly and for a longer period of time. And that's the idea of retrieval practice. Doing it, practice in itself is good. It's great if you want to automate something and it doesn't automate the, 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 the addition tables or uh, how to conjugate a verb or how to um, uh, kick, a, kick a football around a, a row of defenders, it's important to practice and practice and practice until it's automated. Because once it's automated, you don't have to think about it. It doesn't take up any space in your working memory. It happens as, as, as if it happens by itself. But other things that you're doing, that you're learning, you have to constantly try to have the person remember it and not only remember it, but actively remember it and bring it into the working memory to do what you're doing today. And that's, uh, that, that, that's the difference. And you were talking about on the pitch. No, you're not standing there for 15, five minutes and telling. 
you're allowing them. But I give you a, just a completely different example, and we can then stop about it. If I want to teach my granddaughter how to cross a street, okay, we're at the crosswalk. The first thing I'll do, because I've bicycled with her to school in the morning a number of times when grandma and grandpa are taking care of the kids instead of mom and dad, and she knows what a green and a red light means, the first thing I'll say to her when standing there is, see that on the other side of the street? What does that red light mean? And I'm asking her to bring from her memory from, oh, red light means we're on a bicycle. We have to stand still. And only when it's green, we can go. That's simple retrieval practice. But before we even start to cross the road together, that's the first thing I'll do. And then I'll model behavior. Oh, yeah. And then we look in the Netherlands, left, right, left. By you, you, you look right, left, right. And I'll be standing there and moving my head and explaining. And she'll say, Grandpa, why are we doing that? And I'll say, oh, we're doing that. We look back the second time left or right in England because maybe a bicycle came around the corner and might hit us. Oh, okay, Elsa, what do we have to do then? Okay, first look at the light and then we look right, left, right. Retrieval practice again, having her bring it from a long-term memory where it's stagnant, let's call it, actively bring it into the situation so that it becomes relevant at that moment. Those are all, those are, those are two simple little examples of retrieval practice. And I'm only at the second step of crossing uh, um, uh, a busy street at a crosswalk. And you constantly do that. You constantly ask them to bring it from what they've learned on one hand to show you that they've learned it, but the other thing to make it active and relevant in the situation. So, uh, Taking that forward a little bit then, so we're trying to help them become, as you say, uh, automated. It, uh, it becomes natural to do this, uh, to do that. So let's, let's take it to a slightly different stage. And this, is, this one's to you, Carl. Uh, can you explain what you mean by creativity and how might a coach avoid killing it? Because I'm thinking of uh, the famous Ken Robinson TED talk on this. Well, I think creativity for me is... is it's, it's, it's something that's sort of a proxy word in education where everybody wants it, but often when people are talking about it, they it's a sort of a weasel word that stands for a whole range of other things. I, I don't know who it was who said that creativity is about constraints and that it's about uh, limitation and what you can do with limitation. And, and um, Bob Dylan's phrase, uh, three chords and the truth. I think ultimately creativity is about lots of things we've touched on in this conversation, which is uh, a foundational knowledge. It's very, very um, easy to be what we might call creative. I look, my, my daughter is one and a half and she's just discovered crayons and that they can go on anything. And so she opens a book and often they're my books and she'll just scribble, you know, on the page. Now, she will get to a point where she will understand and learn about form. She will understand about color. She will understand about composition. And I would argue that the more of those things that she knows, then she'll truly begin to be creative. I think there's a myth that creativity is this kind of romantic view, um, a view that comes out of a tradition in the 18th century, particularly with thinkers like Rousseau, and it's this idea that the child is just innately wonderful. 
that there's something wonderful in the child and the thing that gets in the way is adults and school. And that is a view, and the, the, the talk you mentioned, the TED talk you mentioned is kind of, it comes out of that tradition that um, it's society, it's civilization that just gets in the way with this wonderful um, childlike cre- sort of sense of creativity that children have. Can, can, and can I, I, can I, I would can say I, it's the opposite. Can I, can I cut in for a second? Sure. Um, to give you the exact quote from Ken Robinson, it's creativity is the process of having original ideas that have value. More often than not, comes about through the interaction of different disciplinary ways of seeing things. In other words, creativity creates something of value. And usually if you know nothing about what you're doing, that creative thing you're doing has no value. Try if you don't know how to play chess or rugby to uh, uh, be uh, uh, creative in a uh, highly valuable way, number one. And it says more often than not comes through the interaction of different disciplinary ways of seeing things. Those disciplinary ways of seeing things are the things you learn at school. So in other words, the exact quote by Ken Robinson, Sir Ken Robinson, is creativity is making valuable things based upon the foundational knowledge that you've obtained. And where do you obtain that, 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 that foundational knowledge? In the school. So actually the idea that schools kill creativity is not what is in his exact quote from the TED Talk. Uh, perhaps we can just keep talking about that creativity idea. So you were talking about uh, working from retrieval uh, with, with the retrieval questions and saying what we've done before. So where does creativity fit into that then? When do you allow uh, the, the child to do the things which we suggest will be creative? It, it depends on, I guess, the, dis- the different discipline that you're you're talking about. But what is creativity? There's also this element with creativity that it's a sign of a it's a sort of a, a rebellious or a seditious act. But even if you think about the great musicians, um, you have to know what the rules are in order to break them. And if you don't know what the rules are, then you're just a nihilist. You, you, yeah. You're just you're just destroying things for the sake of them. L- listen to Bob. Listen to Bob Dylan. Listen to listen to something like John Lennon. And there's a period there in the, in the '60s where the Beatles just there's about five or six albums where you, the, the change in them is, is phenomenal. But they knew so much about chord progressions, melodies. They knew classical art form. They knew all that um, variety stuff. They had such a deep, deep knowledge of music that when it came to albums like Sgt. Pepper's, it looks as if it's this kind of magic. And that's the thing that people like Ken Robinson, they, they, it's almost as if it's magic. Like this is just some sort of ethereal alien thing that happens, creativity, and it's not. Take, it's based take, upon knowing stuff. Sorry. Take, uh, take painters like Dali and, and Picasso, yeah? Um, uh, I often like to say, um, you can't think out of the box, unless you know what's in the box. That's exactly a, a different way of saying what Carl just said. And if you look at them, and you look at the way they their, their early artworks are, it's pure classic painting. And only once they had mastered the classic painting techniques 
they could begin to think outside of the box and develop their own way of painting. I mean, even people like Piet Mondrian that only has red and yellow and blue squares of and, 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 and black lines, if you look at his early works, he was just a normal painter between, quote, air quotes. You have to first know and understand and be able to, 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 to work with the foundation within the box in order to have valuable contributions outside of the box. So as a teacher then, how do you spot creativity in uh, what a child or a uh, sports player does? Can we go back to Kraus? Yes. Okay. Kraus, and this is, this is, this is what uh, he, he was once asked, and it was on his 50th birthday, yeah, um, uh, on a television program. You go to these um, walk-in days at Ajax where there are hundreds of kids running around the field, how do you know who to choose? And what he said was, what I look at there is I look to see if the child knows who to play the ball to, has this instinctive feeling of who should I play the ball to? Because I can't teach him or her. He said him, of course. I have to say him or her because mm. I'm a trained psychologist, APA rules. Um, uh, he said, all of the other things I can teach. I can teach that, 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 that child to kick the ball properly, to, to, to get it to the place it's supposed to be, to pass a defender. I can teach them. That's exactly what I was talking to you about. Those are the things I can teach. The one thing I can't teach is that, that, that feeling of creativity, of, 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 of that instinctual feel that the ball has to go there. Yeah, And not every player has that. If we look at, 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 at the, 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 what the, the, the 16, 18 people who are sitting on the bench or on the field, you only have one in the team that has that. All of the others don't have that. You, I mean, not every team is, is, is 18 Messi's or 18 Ronaldo's or 18 Kreuf's or 18. Think of whoever you want to think. I mean, you'll come up with a lot of British examples. I come with. Dutch examples and and, and, <laughs> and and Spanish examples. Those are are, are, are are the diamonds in the rough that you're you're looking for. The others, you're looking to see if they gain the necessary skills to play. And not every child in the class is going to be a uh, Tennessee Williams and be able to write Catala uh, Hotin Roof. But you hope that you can get them so far that they can write a decent essay. And is the that, one, uh, sorry, yeah. going, writing that decent essay, that's still creative. It's not as creative as Croix would be. No, it's, it's, but it's still so creative, creative, but it's still, it's still um, uh, there are rules to writing an essay. There are nuances, there are subtleties, there are things that, um, that you have to know. And w what is creativity? It, it, it's probably an assimilation of disparate things drawn together and used in a particularly um, original way. So you know, we're talking there about sportsmen, people like Messi. He doesn't have anything else or any other options that any other player doesn't have. He's just seeing things differently, and he's acting in a, in, in a different way. And there's this as well, I think, myth about... I notice in, in coaching football 
this this idea of, of creativity and expression. I would have to say, on average, the team that wins is usually the team that works harder. They chase back more. They make things horrible for the opposition. They they really good teams have this sense of they kind of they they say you know in certain terms to the opposition after 20 minutes there's nothing in this for you today we are gonna we're gonna just run faster than you we're gonna run we're gonna run for longer than you and then it just becomes a, a sort of a, a battle of wills and then you look at things and you look at you know there's a corner or a header and you think oh that's the thing that won the game when actually it's the chances that are created it's the chances that have been minimized to the opposition and so Creativity, I think, is a quite a, an elusive thing, um, but at the end, I'll, there's just an awful lot of hard work in the background. But I'm just going back then to what Paul was saying and to what you're saying, building on that. And this, I might be completely the wrong way of thinking about it, but it sounds like creativity is actually just thinking faster than everybody else and then executing it. So, as you say, Messi has only got what virtually everyone else has got in terms of tools. Um, and he's a bit smaller than a number of other players, of course, but he mm. just does everything that little bit faster. And when he he can see four passes ahead, whereas the rest of us can see two passes ahead. Is that is that what you're suggesting, your morale on the yeah. wrong lines? Are? Yeah, and 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 there's there's clearly some physical attributes. He has a very low center of gravity. Yeah, he, you know, he has he has elements, of course, that are that are there, but lots of other players do as well, and they they don't they don't have the same impact. So it's a sort of a as I say, an assimilation of, of lots of different things. And I think he would probably say, or players who are like that, there's, there's an instinctive element to it as well. Um, so it, it, it's, a, it's a sort of a, a mass of things. But to go back to the original question about do schools kill creativity, it's, it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. What I see every day is teachers working really hard for students um, and students uh, responding to that, and students flourishing. Actually, I don't. I don't. I, I don't see. I don't recognize that description of schools at all. If we look at a game that I call a game and not a sport, and that's chess, and there's been quite a lot of research on it. Um, uh, the most important thing for a chess master or a grandmaster is the the knowledge in uh, his or her long term memory of hundreds of thousands of games and hundreds and thousands of, of, of board setups so that in any given situation, that person can draw upon a vast library of possible next moves, not because he or she is thinking at that moment 17 steps yeah. ahead, but because at that moment, he or she has a limited set of possibilities that have worked in the past and only because he or she has all of that stored in memory. And we know that since 1946, since Ade de Groot, research did on how expert chess players think. Now, if we put that into a sporting training context, is it possible then that uh, you can improve these players' ability, um, child, adult, uh, whatever, uh, by creating as many different scenarios. Yes. Uh, and yeah. another, going back to another point that you made, Paul, is that uh, when we're talking about the AAAABBBB, yeah, variability of practice, uh, that actually the AAA and then the BBB, the BBB is 
is not that much different from the AAA that the the player really struggles to put it all together. So when they no, see the scenario, exactly. it, it could be a lot different or maybe quite similar. It, it could be it could be similar. It's like when do I step in? When do I step out? When do I move to the side? Mm. But what you do is you create situations in which A C B C A B C D C B C A, mm. so that they are constantly confronted with the different situations. They will, of course, practice the curve turn 7,000 times until they get it right, mm. yeah? But then you put them in situations where they say, can I use the curve turn here? And not constantly giving them only situations in which they can do it, right. because then use it in every other situation, they won't be able to discriminate. Sorry if I use a, another uh, uh, psychological term, but they will be able to know the difference between when do I do A and when do I do B and when do I do C and when doesn't A, B, C even work and I have to think of something at that moment and do something so yeah, I that I haven't learned and trained, but I have the skills to carry it out anyway. So then if I was uh, putting together a practice, designer practice, and we use the, uh, the, the Cruyff turn, uh, we would practice it uh, that would be part A and then part B, C and D. I may have an opportunity to use it, but I might not. And I have to then decide when to use it. But then I'll be using other skills at the same time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. OK. And that's that's that's, that's the whole idea. And I think you can put it to a defender. When do I do this? When do I do that? When do I do the other thing? But if you only then have somebody try to pass them on 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 the uh, on, on the sideline side. Yeah. And it's only a left footed. On the uh, 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 striker on the left-hand side, or what is it called? I don't know. We call him a left winger. Yeah, yeah. A left-footed left winger. And all of a sudden, you haven't ever confronted that 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 defender with a right-footed left winger and those types of things. That person will not know how to deal with the different situations. So then you first do this, and then you do that, and you vary it within the practice so that it constantly because people change positions. So that the person knows what do I do in this defending situation if I have this type of person playing against me or that. And that was one of the major problems that I had with, with playing squash is that I played primarily against right-handed squashers. And I was completely dumbfounded what I should do and what I should expect when all of a sudden a lefty, when I was playing against lefty, because the balls come from different angles, mm. but I had never had any practice with that. Because I didn't have a formal training, no trainer had ever put me in the in the, in the box there with both a left-handed and a right-handed, or somebody who always uses a forehand or a backhand. So I was at a disadvantage in a situation because I only had A A A A training and never a B or a C or a D. So Carl, are you using this uh, when you go out onto the field tomorrow if it's dry enough with your first eleven? Well, I think uh, all fixtures probably be cancelled with the current weather. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think there's a really good phrase by Bob York. Uh, you, you were mentioned there talking about the difference between mass practice and space practice, that if you um, practice something like what we call cramming in, you know, cramming for an exam, mm. um, he described that as giving the illusion of competence yeah. and that you feel that you, you, you have the sense that you've learned this thing, that you've mastered it when actually you haven't at all. Um, and so as you were saying, being, be introduced to that 
issue or that problem or that thing to be learned in multiple different situations over time, that leads to to long-lasting learning as opposed to very temporary learning. Yeah, I think in uh, terms, we sometimes say it's repetition without repetition. So mm. you've got uh, little edges and wrinkles all the time as you're going along and therefore as you're saying you are you're doing a and sort of a1 and a2 and a3 and then you're going into b and b1 and b2 and b3 yeah now uh, before we started uh the, the podcast um paul said uh, that there was a special learning limit he thought on the length of a podcast and we've yes. gone well beyond that we've only just really scratched the surface of what's uh, contained in the book and i know it's all based around the book but you can we uh, anyone who's listening can understand the passion both of you got behind this is there sort of anything that you want to sort of bring forward as the key aspects which you've sort of want to say this is what the book really has told me or made me rethink i what i would say is that um if someone reads the book, if groups of teachers discuss the different chapters in the book, which is each about a different giant from the field and what he, unfortunately, no she's, next book has to have some she's in it. What it tries to, to achieve is that teachers do quite a lot of good things. 80 to 90% of what they do is actually very, very good. It's not rocket science what we tell them. But what we're trying to do is have them understand the reasons behind why things work. So they're not just doing things because it has worked or it works, but they understand why it works, in what situations it'll work, so that they can more effectively make use of the pedagogical educational techniques that they make use of. They know what to use in what situations. They know when to use the craft turn and when to just lob the ball over the defender and then run around him. Um, I think the book, I think it's it's just sort of a, um, it's like classic albums. You know, if, if you were to think about the, the most essential albums in the last 50 years, um, it's a list of sort of foundational research and a, a lot of research comes out of the research that, um, that's in the book. And as Paul says, we tried to make it so that teachers and, and anyone who's interested in learning can understand the basic principles at work and then be able to apply it in a range of contexts. And the last thing I'd say is that the thing about reading evidence about research, and, and particularly in the, in the field um, of psychology, is the more you read, the less you're sure of anything. <laughs> other than a few things and that's a good thing because it makes you second guess everything you know that thing of teachers in the first year of teaching you kind of think oh, i've cracked it and this is you know i know I, I know exactly what i'm doing more evidence just makes you more humble it makes you more likely to be more reflective in your practice and to think again about what you're doing and and is there what's the reason why i'm doing this um so I hope that that is something that people can can uh, and it's also just a very good reference book as well. Um, you can look at different chapters and it's not you don't necessarily need to read it um, chronologically. And I would say that, first of all, um, having read the book, um, I definitely dipped in and dipped out. I went to the chapters I wanted to go to first 
um, thoroughly agreed with them. Um, and then I went to the other chapters and I thought, oh, I've really got to rethink this. And uh, perhaps I was wrong about that. And uh, maybe I want to uh, change my mind on that. From people who don't necessarily dip into the educational uh, Twitter world or into this sort of learning world uh, and still sort of the coaching side of things, this is a great adventure into that. And it's very accessible and lots of good examples and a few sporting examples. But I know that you're both very keen on your sport as well. So it was lovely to capture some of that in what you said and um, then start to think about applying it. And that's something I certainly will do. So thank you both again very much for your insights and your energy into uh, the learning space. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for interrupting at the right moments and jumping in and that sort of thing. I, I must admit, this is the first time I've done um, a podcast with two people on the other end and one working to uh, jump in. And uh, I normally want to jump in myself. So just to say that I'll put a link to where you can get the book at the bottom of the podcast. The book, again, is called How Learning Happens, Similar Works in Educational Psychology and What They Mean in Practice. Thank you very much for listening. And um I hope you enjoyed everything that we were able to talk about. Thanks for listening to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the Blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport, and learning.